This is Docera Digest Podcast, breaking down health concepts. This podcast is brought to you by Docera Life Center. This innovative clinic is finding new solutions to the evolving challenges mankind faces in the 21st century. By utilizing cutting-edge technology and testing, they find root causes and also offer treatment with energy and nutrition. What is the mission? To dynamically change lives for the better while impacting families for generations. The information shared directly or indirectly in the Docera Digest podcast is not to be understood as or misconstrued as medical advice. This information is not a replacement for your current health provider who is acutely aware of your current health state and course of treatment. Any information shared about a product or service discussed by any host or guest on this podcast is not to be interpreted as a doctor-patient relationship. Hi, welcome back to Docere Digest. I'm Dr. Craig Barney. Welcome to our, our series on anxiety and stress. So far, we've talked about what is stress. We've talked about some aspects of stress. We've talked about things that can impact or cause stress. And today we're going to talk about some of the adverse outcomes of stress. So with that in mind, I'm going to get right to the heart of the matter. <laughs> so as I as I get to talk about cardiovascular disease, but before I do, I want to kind of tie into something we've kind of discussed and we talked about cause. Last time you talked about parasites being the underlying cause of a, a of all of all these illnesses. According to the WHO, World Health Organization, cardiovascular disease is still the number one cause of disease and has been for basically over a century. Yeah. Right. What I found interesting is also, according to the Department of Justice and the Office of Justice Programs in the United States, stress is the number one killer because it's linked to so many of the conditions we're going to talk about today. Mm. Now, as Dr. Caleb finished last time, I thought it was interesting because he talked about this cycle. So really, we're in the middle of a cycle. And doesn't that really actually start when we're born? Mm. So does that mean birth is the number one cause of death? Cycle of life, baby. There you go. Well, you can't die without being born first. So Exactly. Exactly. So as I go through cardiovascular disease, I think it's going to make sense why stress causes cardiovascular disease. It's Most of us think about when we get under stress, oh my gosh, am I going to have a heart attack? I want to talk about some of the aspects of it, of what leads to it. And then I'm going to talk about a real interesting uh, condition that I found, I read about today that I thought was really interesting. So first of all, first of all, let's talk about uh, real quickly, I'm just going to kind of review what's because Dr. Caleb talked about this a lot last mm -hmm. time. When we get under stress, what happens? First of all, we get we get activation of the HPA axis, which increases cortisol, increases blood sugar, blood cholesterol, triglycerides. We also get the release of epinephrine and norepinephrine, which increases blood pressure, increases hardy cardiac, <laughs> increases heart rate. I was going to say tachycardia, which interestingly, if you get it bad enough, you'll get cardiac arrest, we get increased intensity of the heartbeat, shallow breathing, which we're going to talk about here in a sec, because Dr. Ben, you and I had an interesting conversation about, but how that constricts the alveoli to force oxygen uh, into the into the bloodstream. What it also does, though, is it, it reduces the toxic elimination through the breath, which I thought was interesting. And like you talked about, when that happens, when the uh, Shallow breathing subsides, all of a sudden we get these, we get lightheaded, dizzy, we can get headaches because of these toxic elements. It also causes something we haven't talked about, a deficiency of nitric oxide, which affects the production of the endothelial lining 
of the blood vessels. And then we also have increased homocysteine levels, which increased homocysteine, if we have too much in the blood, is actually like sandpaper on the inside of blood vessels. So one of the analogies I like to think of is think about somebody that works out, but never stops. A little bit of stress on the muscle, no problem. Long-term stress on the muscle, big problem. So we have stress on, first of all, let's talk about the blood vessels. Blood vessels are muscular, but they're also an elastic type muscular. So if we get a rubber band that's overstretched, over time it loses its elasticity and cannot sustain the healthy blood pressure. The heart is a muscle. If the muscle is overused, over time it becomes weak and fatigued. Then we also talked about the damage to the blood vessel, that if we have this damage to the blood vessel, then you get infiltration of the foam cells, which also has cholesterol, which then creates these blockages. And now we have decreased flow of blood. And when it when it's going to the heart, then we get things like heart attacks and uh, uh, myocardial infarct, that type of thing. So it's easy to see why stress can cause that. What I want to kind of dive into that I think is interesting is I want to talk about a condition called Takotsubo cardiomyopathy or broken heart syndrome. Mm. It's also known as stress cardiomyopathy. So this is when a heart muscle becomes suddenly stunned or weakened, and it mostly occurs during following severe emotional or physical stress. So in this condition, the main, the heart's main pumping chamber or the left ventricle changes its shape. This affects the heart's ability to pump blood effectively. Now where it gets this name is the heart chamber starts to look like a taco subo pot, which is a Japanese pot they use to actually catch octopus. So if you look at the heart, the left ventricle actually looks like a octopus trapped in a taco subo pot. Mm-hmm. So there's our trivia for today. Japanese tacos. Exactly. So what's interesting, we also have talked about triggers. The common triggers for this condition are death of a loved one, a serious accident, a fierce argument, an unexpected loss or sudden illness, which this, what I find interesting is these all overlap on each other. You can see how it, I think this whole cycle of life really comes into it is does parasites cause the heart disease? Does heart disease cause the parasites to stress? It's, it doesn't really matter to a degree. Yes, we want to get at what the priority is to address, but isn't the cause really just life? So what's also interesting about this Takotsubo cardiomyopathy is it can occur at any age in both men and women, but it mostly affects older women. Interesting. So... You older ladies, don't stress. So the good news is this tends to be a temporary condition and the heart muscle usually heals within about two to four weeks. And most people fully recover within about two months. What I really want to get at the most in in my part of it is the concept of short-term versus long-term stress. And I think this really is the biggest issue is we tend to think of stress in what we are experiencing consciously. And like Dr. Caleb talked about last time, these little low-grade underlying subconscious and unconscious stresses, I really think are the biggest issue that leads to this heart disease. And kind of the way I approach things, we talked about this, we talked about energy medicine and the flow of energy. And what I think is interesting and why I think heart's a big deal is I think where this is where our emotions get stuck, especially for us guys, because we don't like to Mm experience emotions, we tend to block our emotions. And I think what happens is all that energy just gets stuck in the heart and it can't move. And where energy doesn't move, it creates a breakdown and and a dysfunction. 
So I can talk about this because I've experienced it myself. And and here's what the the thing that I found really interesting or what I'm finding recently is it isn't even the emotion itself that's the issue. Mm. It's our thought or our reaction to the emotion. It's not even the anxiety that's the issue. It's our resistance to the anxiety that's the issue. But if we'll just allow ourselves to feel the emotion of fear or feel the emotion of sadness or feel the emotion of anger, that's healthier than blocking those emotions. Now, I think the reason we do that is because we don't like how we react to those emotions. And that's really what we're trying to block. So I'll share one other little interesting thing that just kind of an anecdotal thing that I noticed. Um, I've had PVCs, preventricular contractions. I've experienced AFib most recently. And I found this little nuance that I thought was interesting, at least for me. When I had PVCs, it was more mental driven. When I had AFib, it was more emotional driven. So as we've talked about, if we don't deal with these stressors, they will literally eat you up inside. So we talk a lot about emotional stress, mm-hmm. right? We talk about we wear things in our heart. That's mm-hmm. where our emotions is, the heart of everything that we have. And we right. forget the connection between the brain and the heart a mm-hmm. lot of times. And you brought that up, the nitric oxide. Right. Those connections are there that control that. And it's the brain that controls to the SA node, to the AV node as well. Right. So when the brain stresses out and causes issues, whether it's emotional, whether it's physical, financial, spiritual, whatever it is, right. that's having a dynamic effect on that heart. And we think about the job of the heart. Mm-hmm. It's just a pump that pumps all this fluid around that we need for the rest of the body. So it's interesting that when we start looking at these stressors, emotional, whichever, PVCs, right. AFib, all those factors, the a bundle branch block, all right. those factors that happen in the SA node, AV node. It's pretty interesting, you know, so. So to me, what that says is literally it's what we think about the emotion or the energy in the heart that I think that that's literally what's happening is that as that neurologic signal comes down, it's our thought process of either resistance to or coordinating with. And it's what triggers the heart to react, right? Right. Whether it's cortisol or oxytocin, right? right. You know, fight or flight, freeze, which are all right. those different mechanisms, right? And how well, fast we do that, right? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that too, because that, that's the thing I meant to get back to with the uh, the constriction of the alveoli. How you know, you and I talked about how it's oxytocin that's meant to let that release. Well, what if we don't get that oxytocin release? Then we're we're in this constant constricted forced oxygenation, lack of detoxification process going on. I think that if you ever want to figure out if you're in stress, pay attention to your breathing. More often than not, mm-hmm. you'll catch yourself not breathing. Right. It's just amazing how many times you're going, I'm not breathing and I didn't yeah. even realize it. Right. And so it's just this chronic low grade, like you talked about last time too, it's, it becomes our new normal. I, I like the acronym of the, of the gas, the general adaptive syndrome. And I, I referenced that to a car. You have so much gas in your tank. Right. And the faster you go, the faster the gas gets burned up. Right. And so eventually you're going to pass out or you're going to go to sleep. Right. And that's what happens is if you think about that power washers we talked about, when you intensify the compressiveness, you intensify the output, which means you're speedily getting rid of stuff quickly. Right. And if you can't get that to unwind, you're in that constant state of flight. As you said, the heart's the most important muscle in the body. Right. 24-7. It's beat 100 to 120,000 times a day. Right. 
in a normal life. In right. a stressed life, it's 140, 160, 180, you know? Well, I also think it's interesting the conversation you and I, you and I had about stress, that it's, is stress good or bad? I, I really think it's neutral. I, I think the hard part too is stress is a big word that we're, we're applying to things that really maybe have multiple meanings. And mm-hmm. I, for me, I think the biggest aspect I would tie into stress is just resistance. When we resist life, it creates dysfunction. So since we were talking about the lungs and the alveoli, I'm going to pass it on to Dr. Kato and let him talk about the All right. Thank you, Dr. Craig. So like I said, I'm going to be talking about the pulmonary system, which includes the lungs and airways, as well as the blood vessels between the lungs and the heart for the gaseous exchange. So I'm sure we all know the importance of breathing, not only from science classes in school, but also from everyday life. If you try holding your breath for just a couple minutes, you'll become keenly aware of just how vital it is to be able to breathe. It is more important than even food or water. After all, you can survive several weeks without food, several days without water, but can only last several minutes without air. Breathing is something we all do around 12 to 18 times per minute, which is about 22,000 times per day. So as I'm sure you're aware, the purpose of this process is to bring in air so we can get important components such as oxygen and nitrogen for the body to use and to get rid of carbon dioxide waste, as well as some toxins from the liver out of the body. As a side note, as we kind of were talking about earlier, and Dr. Craig mentioned this too, is some of that release of toxicity. So some of those toxins from the liver are transported out through the lungs, and that that occurs most during the rest and repair processes that occur while you sleep. This is also why you have morning death breath. So if you have really, really bad morning breath, you might want to get your liver checked out to see if it needs some extra support or analyze what you are putting into your body that increases your toxicity levels. Anyways, Dr. Ben is going to cover breathing in much greater detail in another episode, so I'm not going to go into real deep depth on the uh, mechanisms and processes that occur during respiration right now. However, I do want to review a little on how we get oxygen in particular and why it is so important for us. So oxygen enters the lungs through the negative pressure due to the pulling pressure of the diaphragm as it expands. It distributes through the alveoli and ventilates the capillaries at the alveolar capillary membrane participating in gas exchange for CO2. The CO2 then travels back through the alveoli and upper airways to be exhaled into the environment. So oxygen is a key component of the energy production cycle which occurs in the mitochondria inside each cell of the body. This is why it is important to have a proper amount of oxygen coming in and a proper amount of red blood cells to carry the oxygen through the bloodstream to the entire body. So how does stress affect the pulmonary system? Well, one of the most recognizable and severe ways is hyperventilation that occurs in a panic attack due to extreme anxiety or fear. So hyperventilation is defined as breathing in excess of the metabolic needs of the body, eliminating more carbon dioxide than is produced, and consequently resulting in respiratory alkalosis and an elevated blood pH. Now, this isn't exclusive to panic attacks and stress, as it is also the basis of asthma attacks, COPD, and pulmonary fibrosis. This is something I was too keenly aware of as a child, as I had pretty severe asthma that consisted of both the environmentally induced and the exercise-induced forms of asthma. When I was two years old, I was taken to the ER and was coded due to a severe attack and almost died. 
Thankfully, I don't have any vivid memories of that experience, but I did experience many other asthma attacks throughout my life, and I can tell you that not being able to breathe properly, and especially hyperventilation, can be a very scary experience. It's also very dangerous as prolonged hyperventilation can actually lead to tissue hypoxia, which is when tissues don't have enough oxygen. Now, wait a second. How is that possible? Isn't hyperventilation about breathing in more oxygen? Well, hyperventilation also involves breathing out more carbon dioxide than normal, which leads to decreased CO2 levels in the blood. This increases hemoglobin affinity for oxygen, which means the oxygen is more tightly bound to the hemoglobin. This results in less oxygen actually being released to go to the cells. So hyperventilation also reduces blood flow to the brain, and both these factors combine to reduce the availability of oxygen to the tissues of the brain and can even cause cerebral hypoxia. Now, this is similar, albeit less sudden and severe, to the process that we see in strokes as blood clots in the brain prevent brain tissue past the clot from getting proper oxygen supply, which can result in that tissue being damaged or even the death of that tissue. Now, it's interesting that different parts of the body actually have different tolerances to tissue hypoxia. The brain is less than three minutes. Kidney and liver can actually go 15 to 20 minutes. Skeletal muscle, 60 to 90 minutes. Vascular smooth muscle can last 24 to 72 hours, and hair and nails can last several days. So, again, where you're losing oxygen in your body can change your effects or the symptoms that you're feeling and what actual portions of your body are being affected by that. So, some clinical signs of potential, potential tissue hypoxia include dyspnea, altered mental state, Hmm. Maybe this is what's wrong with the world today. Maybe everyone just needs to stop and breathe. <laughs> <laughs> but slowly, right? Yeah, breathe slowly. So hypoventilation or low breathing, which is the opposite of hyperventilation, arrhythmias, nausea, vomiting, GI issues, systemic hypotension, which is low blood pressure, and even coma are all signs of potential tissue hypoxia. So if you're in a coma, go get that checked out, okay? Yeah. Or if you have any of the other, other symptoms, you know. So obviously hyperventilation is a more extreme case, but stress can cause significant changes on a smaller scale also. I also want to point out that stress in the pulmonary system is not limited to emotional stress like anxiety and panic. We breathe in many foreign particles, irritants, and pollutants on a daily basis, and all of those can cause physical or chemical stress as well. Regardless of the cause of stress, it will stimulate the integrated stress response, which when triggered, or becomes activated by um, one or more of these toxic triggers that employs uh, one of the four stress-sensing kinases. Heme-regulated inhibitor is activated by iron deficiency and oxidative stress. Protein kinase R, PKR, is activated by the DNA in viruses and bacteria. PKR-like endoplasmic reticulum kinase, PERK, is activated by hypoxia and misfolded proteins. And general control non-derepressible 2, or GCN2, is activated by amino acid starvation and UV light. So these stress-sensing kinases furthermore phosphorylate eukaryotic translation initiation factor and reduce global protein synthesis as a protective mechanism. Yeah, everybody, everybody <laughs> yeah, exactly. knows that. I mean, come I mean, on. Obviously. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll, we'll kind of 
bring it down to a little easier to understand in a second. But basically, it wards off stressing the endoplasmic reticulum from an overproduction of proteins. It reduces the consumption of iron and amino acids in times of starvation of these proteins, and it blocks viral or bacterial replication by hindering protein synthesis. Easier to understand? Yeah, what I find interesting that, Dr. Caleb, is, is when we talk about the free, the free radicalization, the oxygenation issue, mm -hmm. which is a aspect of not only the bicarbonate, but the hyperventilation, it increases more free radicals being released, which now you have these oxygen components that cause more cell damage, mm -hmm. which we'll eventually talk about. It goes into paroxynitrosis, affects the brain, which speeds that whole process up. Another vicious cycle. Yeah. Cell danger response and all that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, so some effects that might be easier for us to recognize with stress is it makes us breathe harder and faster, even without the extreme of hyperventilating, causes constriction, tightening, or discomfort of the airways, that's the nose, sinuses, and the trachea, or the windpipe, have trouble breathing in or breathing out, dizziness, headaches, increased heart rate, blue coloring of your lips, face, or fingers, and worsening of other conditions such as asthma, COPD, emphysema, or other lung conditions. So as you're going to be talking about breathing more, is there anything else you want to add as kind of like a precursor to what you're going to say in the next episode, or do you want to save that? I like the other side of that that says, uh, new definition to take my breath away. <laughs> Emotionally, physically, whatever it is. I mean, you know, that's, as Dr. Craig has mentioned, that's another mental aspect that we see something that takes our breath away. What is that? You know, and that's, we slow down and that's interesting that you say that because I something I had meant to say too is when I was talking about this taco subo, we use phrases a lot. I, I was thinking about this as I was reading it. I'm like, how many of us are literally dying of a broken heart? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We say these us. phrases for a reason, and it, right. it's it's we think, well, that's not literal. Yes, it is. Yeah. So we'll talk about that, and then how different neurons and chemistries affect the brain controlling that and the heart reaction to it and then the kidney reaction to it. So the other thing I meant to say in my time is I switched seats with you so you wouldn't experience any of these adverse effects. Oh, okay. <laughs> Did you feel some of those while you're going? No, because I was kind. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Anyways. So if you're feeling a little stressed out from all of this, just stop, take, take a breath. breath. Remember nice focused, slow, deep breaths are very calming and very good for you. All right, so I'm going to practice that myself. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Dr. Luke to talk about the kidneys. Thank you, Dr. Caleb. That was a breathtaking segment. <laughs> oh. Stimulating. Yeah. Well, hopefully yours doesn't piss us off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a great segue. So, so with that, I want to talk about uh, the kidneys. Uh, and fun fact, not fun fact, I should say, but kidney disease is the 10th um, leading cause of death in the U.S., and as Dr. Craig mentioned uh, in talking about cardiovascular disease, one of the main issues with stress as it pertains to the cardiovascular system is that of hypertension or high blood pressure. And the regulation of blood pressure involves a well-conducted harmonious symphony and interplay between the brain, the kidneys, the liver, the lungs, and the adrenal glands. So you can see how the kidneys tie in nicely with many of our topics today. And if you're curious to this and how it works and want to go a little bit more in depth, um, then ask Dr. G, aka Google, and do a search on the renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system and look at the images and have some fun. But to sum it up without going into too much depth here for time's sake, all of these organs and glands have to do with ultimately the adrenals releasing what's called aldosterone, which is a hormone that stimulates the kidneys to hang on to sodium and not excrete it. And this is important because wherever sodium goes, water will follow. 
and this will cause an increase in the blood pressure and fluid volume within the vasculature. In which when this is done rightly, I mean, there's a constant interplay going on here. We don't want too low blood pressure and volume, but we also don't want too much or an increase because here's why. High blood pressure will directly affect our kidneys because the kidneys help filter about one half cup of blood every minute and 150 quarts of blood per day. That's a lot of blood traveling to and through the kidneys and an increase of pressure in the blood vessels can and does most certainly cause damage to the kidneys. Now let's compound this issue and make it worse. Maybe it's not only high blood pressure that's going on, but maybe there's increased heart rate as well. Maybe this person, uh, this hypothetical person stress eats and has metabolic syndrome or diabetes where there's increased sugar in the blood. And maybe we also have an increase of inflammatory lipids or cholesterol in the blood as well. All of this has to travel to the kidneys and be filtered because not only the liver is a major detoxification organ, but so are the kidneys. And this ties in nicely with our topic from last episode because uh, phase zero through three detoxification, that pathway we talked about in the liver also occurs in the kidneys. And instead of it being excreted in the stool or the bowel movement, as Dr. Kaisen aptly pointed out, this is going to be urinated out. <laughs> so if the kidneys are burdened or damaged, this can impair our detoxification ability as well. So stress can lead to high blood pressure and poor dietary habits can lead to metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes, as well as hyperlipidemia and increase in inflammatory cholesterol. We could also have, again, increased xenobiotic or toxic exposure, and all of this will eventually wear down the kidneys and cause kidney damage over time and could even result in death. There's, as you can see, a component of a vicious cycle to all of this too. People with high blood pressure and diabetes are at risk for kidney disease, and people with kidney disease are at risk for heart and blood vessel disease. So as you can see, we're hitting on the top leading cause of causes of death here with cardiovascular disease and kidney disease and diabetes as they're all very closely intertwined. And that really covers the kidneys and kidney dysfunction and how they're related to stress. And I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Ben, who's going to talk about stress and various types of cancers. Dr. Ben. Thanks, Dr. Luke. It, well, it's interesting when you bring this up as we think about there's only a very few organs that receive constant blood supply 24-7, right? And so we talked about when Dr. Craig was talking about the cardiovascular issue, that heart pumping, you know, 100 to 120,000 times a day. And then Dr. Caleb talked about we're breathing 20, 22, 24,000 times a day. And we're producing urine 24-7 a day. That's why you can go on a starvation diet or a liquid diet. You still produce urine, right? So when, when I look at all those components and you think about where all this is going, from the brain to the heart to the lungs to the liver to the kidneys, some of the most vital organs that are out there. And that's why we see so many different aspects of that. In fact, if you look at the top 15 killers in North America, kidney diseases is three of them. Mm. And it's that significant that that's in there. So, mm -hmm. so today I, my topic is going to be stress and cancer. Oh, I'm sorry, I was go just going to ask Dr. Luke, I just want to know, is this the same hypothetical patient as last time? I guess, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I just curious. Hypothetically well, speaking, well, I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't have like a specific person in mind, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> For those of you who are watching, I wish you could watch our outtakes because we're going to talk about this, or I'm going to talk about this. We use laughter because we're under stress, right? And so we find ways to alleviate our stress through laughter. So maybe one of these days we'll just have an episode of bloopers. I'm not sure, but at any oh, rate. Oh, boy. Sure, Jason's I, got a collection for us. Oh, I'm sure he does. <laughs> I know which one we should start with. Could, could, oh, yeah, I do too. Cat scratch. <laughs> oh, oh, no. oh, that's not where I was going. Oh, okay. Uh, let's get back on track here. Yeah, you guys exactly. are going down. Okay. We're laughing because I'm about to bring up a very serious topic uh, when I talk about stress and cancer. 
So the first thing I want you to know is I don't want to cause anybody any stress by talking about this subject. And many of you have either experienced some form of cancer or know who's someone who has. I myself have had cancer, probably cancer, and I have now been cancer-free for almost 19 years. So I know the significance of not only the disease, uh, the treatment, the recovery, and all those kind of things there are. The second point I want to make clear here is that cancer is a very complex group of diseases that can affect many different people in many different ways. In fact, there are now more than 165 different types of cancers or cancer groupings that affect the human body. So we need to do our best to separate the cancer myth from the cancer facts, and that is very difficult to do. Even though science and research may have not found the direct connection in some things, or even if it's what is stated may not be scientifically found yet, there are some things that we know that really seems to make a lot of sense regarding this topic. Especially when we talk about the foods we eat, the nutrition we take, our physical activity, our levels, our weight from the very thin to obesity, then our mood coping mechanisms like smoking, alcohol, substance abuse, sugar-based foods. Did I say chocolate? I meant chocolate, yeah. <laughs> our relationships as well as our social interactions and even our hormone reactions. These all have a part in determining the probability of someone contracting some form of cancer. So what is cancer? According to the National Cancer Institute, the basic definition of cancer is that it is a disease which in some of the body's cells grows uncontrollably and spreads to other parts of the body. Keep in mind that cancer can start almost anywhere in the body, which is made up of over several trillion cells. Technically, cancer is the uncontrolled growth of abnormal or old cells in the body and develops when the body's normal control mechanisms start working. Excuse me, stops working. This happens when some old cells do not die, kind of like some of us old farts, anyway, and instead they grow out of control, forming new abnormal cells or mutated cells that may form a massive tissue that we then call a tumor. A number of forces can cause cell mutations, such as smoking, radiation, viruses, and we talked about parasites, we talked about mold, we talked about limes, talked about all these different things, chemicals such as carcinogens, obesity, hormones, chronic inflammation, a lack of exercise, and gene mutations. So some people have asked, well, is cancer just a bad gene or a mutation of genes? Since we know that cancer is caused by damage to the cells and the genome of the DNA is in our cells, we do refer to these as genetic or gene mutations. Gene mutations can build up in cells in our body over time, and cells with too many mutations may stop working normally, grow out of control, and then can become cancers. Now, most people believe that cancers are inherited from the family, and yes, there are some cases of that being true. However, most gene mutations occur after you're born, and they're not inherited. So what kinds of mutations occur in our cells? There are four known types of mutations, as well as different combinations that are involved. These are called substitution, deletion, insertion, and translocation within the genome of our DNA. And those happen up to a million times a minute, right? So when your body's constantly reproducing cells and it's reading its DNA or its genomic pattern, it decides how or what is going to be developed. So when it's constantly changed or the environment has changed, we're going to get different ones that are in there. So when a variation of the four types of mutations occur, generally it means a cell starts making too many proteins and that will trigger the cell to divide. This increased speed of division can alter the cell's morphology and begin to create the odd cell that will continue to alter and produce more mutated cells to form the mass of the tumor. 
when a normal old cell, normal old guy, normal, yeah. When a normal old cell stops making proteins, that normally tells the cell to stop dividing. This is called apoptosis or cell death, which is the one other way the body gets rid of bad cells. So the next thought, next thought or question may be, do we all have cancer cells in our body? Generally, no. However, our bodies are constantly producing new cells, some of which have the potential to become cancerous. And at any given moment, we may be producing cells that have mutated or damaged our DNA, but that doesn't mean they're destined to become cancer. So does everyone have these cancer mutations? Currently, research has suggested that one in five healthy adults may carry some disease-related genetic mutations. I found that interesting that research came out about that because I think we constantly are there. But again, we're going to talk about environment, some of those other factors that can cause that. This is usually when someone asks, well, how long can you have cancer without knowing it? The basic answer is that it can take years or even decades before a person with developing cancer will have any noticeable symptoms and the cancer will, during that time frame, go undetected. I can remember one of my uh, cousins that uh, had only been in the hospital once in his life. And at 67, he was working on his chalet and he fell off his ladder and broke his leg. And he went to the hospital and this whole body was just riddled with cancer. And that happened to be in, in Colorado. And he came back home and they go, we don't think you're going to live a month. 19 days later, we buried him. Never been sick a day in his life, right? So it happens. So of the 165 plus types of cancers, these break down into 103 different types of what we call neoplasms, which simply, simply means a growth that can either be benign, which is non-cancerous, or malignant, which means to be cancerous. Benign tumors usually grow slowly and cannot or will not spread to other tissues, while malignant or cancer cells do spread to other tissues. Of these 103 different neoplasms, most take 15 to 25 years of growth or development before they become apparent or start causing some abnormal symptoms. There are generally only four of the 103 that will grow fast, like within five to 15 years. This is why some kids get some of these very serious ones. They'll have uh, childhood cancers. They're detrimental. So then, can stress and or anxiety cause cancer? So far, research has stopped short of concluding that chronic stress causes cancer, but enough is understood about the association to suggest that being in a constant state of stress is a risk factor for cancer and its progression, as we have previously said, inflammation is likely the blame. We do know that anxiety disorders may be caused by medical issues associated with cancer, tumors of the adrenal gland, the pituitary gland, the pancreas or thyroid cells, all cause symptoms of anxiety and panic disorder. Cancers of the lung, brain and spinal cord also share some of the same symptoms with anxiety. People with depression have an increased risk of cancer, ranging from a low of 10% to as high as 39% increased risk, depending upon the type of cancer. And those dealing with greater or chronic levels of depression have a higher risk for lung, GI, breast, and urinary cancer, some of the more common ones that we see. So what does the stress of having cancer or being diagnosed with cancer do to us? When we are diagnosed with cancer, many people feel an increase in stress, and it can easily become chronic. Research now suggests that chronic stress can actually make that cancer spread faster. Stress can speed up the spread of cancer throughout the body, especially in ovarian, breast, and colorectal cancer. So if you've ever been diagnosed with cancer or you know somebody who has, the first thing you need to do is de-stress them, right? Because everybody's afraid of that big killer, the number two killer, supposedly in North America. That leads us to a significance of how stress is a key aspect of cancer. 
Chronic stress can increase the production of certain growth factors that increase our blood supply. This growth factor production can speed up the development of the cancerous tumors. As we've stated in previous episodes, chronic stress is way more damaging. This type of no end in sight chronic stress can actually increase chronic inflammation, which will eventually weaken your immune system, which will make you more prone to mutation or morphology of your cells, which then can lead to certain diseases like cancer. Not to mention the digestive issues to more stress to the end game of depression. It's been proven that chronic stress also can help cancer grow and spread in a number of different ways. That's the difference between the malignant and the benign. We also know that chronic stress can be inhibited or can inhibit a process called anokis, which means it's the natural way that our bodies kill diseased cells and present, prevents them from spreading. So if you have a mutated or morphology cell that the body goes, that's bad, kill it, get rid of it, stress lessens the ability for us to recognize that and do that. So let's talk about a few ways to help manage our stress. What can you do about stress? Well, first thing to do, if at all possible, is remove the cause. <laughs> that's the easiest thing to do. Get out of the situation as best as you can. But that's not always possible when it comes to the types of things that cause chronic stress. Even if you can't rid yourself of the source of your stress, you can learn to manage it. This can help you keep a lid on chronic stress. It also helps you prevent minor sources of stress from lingering to a point where they're affecting your health. So here's some stress-related strategies. Number one, I say this jokingly, people, but please don't take it wrong. Take stress seriously, right? Understand this is a serious factor. See, I'm laughing because I've had to deal with this. It's important to understand the negative consequences of stress, especially when it comes to cancer risk. If you feel crankier than usual, you don't have the energy you once had, or you're sleeping poorly, all those are signs of stress. Take some steps to fix the problem before it affects your health in more serious ways. Let's talk about a few of those. Number one, get adequate sleep. Get 78 hours of sleep each night. It's a great defense against stress. A full night's sleep is essential to proper immune function, repairability. It affects your mood, memory, and ability to focus, right? Sink in a regular skeep shell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Skeep shell? Did you say Skeep. that again? Yeah, that, 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 right. Stick to a regular sleep schedule. Avoid TV in bed. <laughs> right, it's one of the reasons I hate having TVs in the bedrooms. Exercising regularly can also help you sleep more soundly, which is exercise. It's associated with the release of endorphins or the feel-good hormones, the oxytocin we talked about, some of the dopamine issues, some of these other factors. While all exercise is good for your body, the higher-intensity workouts have been found to release even more endorphins. For those of you who can do high-intensity workouts, that's a better way to do that, which means high-intensity and slow, I mean, in fast, uh, but very small episodic events. Yet even regular exercise like walking can also lower the body stress hormones over time. Walking, bicycling, swimming, even calisthenics. Spend time outdoors. Getting fresh air and a dose of greening can be incredible, relaxing, and refreshing. Not surprisingly, most studies have found that the great outdoors is a great remedy for feelings of depression anxiety, and stress. The calmness of nature counteracts the constant stimulation people are exposed to in everyday life, in our phones, and all the media and everything that's hitting us, and it just, it helps relieve that stress as a result. Play with a pet. Now, for some of you, we have to qualify what a pet is, but play with a pet. <laughs> if exercise, fresh air, and physical affection can reduce stress, imagine what a playful game of fets can do. <laughs> I really struggle with, with, with dealing with that. Anyway, Studies have found that spending time with a pet can produce more oxytocin, which is the other feel-good hormone. How about clearing your mind? I almost said clean your mind. One common reason people don't practice the aforementioned stress relievers is because they feel as if there's not enough time. 
I don't have time. I'm too stressed. Stress often tricks, tricks the brain into feeling overwhelmed and pressed for time. Luckily, clearing the mind and taking some deep breaths only require a couple of minutes and can be done from anywhere. Sitting in a car at a red light, you know, take a breath. We'll talk about some of that next time. Practicing meditation at the start of the day, in the shower or church or before bed can greatly relieve stress. I, I generally tell my clients that, you know, I do my prayers and my stretches in the shower. And that seems kind of weird, you know, especially when I come in and say, Dr. Caleb, I was thinking about you in the shower this morning, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but if you do some of that meditation and you let that time frame help clean or clear your mind, it has a great effect on it. Dr. You, Luke is way de-stressing over there now. <laughs> I'm so not stressed right now. <laughs> Next one is take time for things you love. Whether, stu whether stress comes from feeling overworked, overbooked, or dealing with changes, taking time to enjoy hobbies can ease the mind, which means you need to have a hobby besides work. Is that even possible? Oh, anyway. Making time for favorite activities is a simple way to show self-love and help the body reduce stress. Now, the next part of that becomes natural, I would think, for me. That means who do you express the love with? But give or receive physical affection, right? Physical affection makes people feel loved, wanted, and saved. Along with soothing emotional benefits, there are also physiological changes that can reduce stress occurring alongside physical affection. Once again, oxytocin is a hormone that's released during this process, and we call that the cuddling hormone. So whether you're playing with a pet, playing with a child, or playing with a spouse or mate, right? Those are all good stress relievers. So luckily, reliving, uh, relieving stress, relieving stress, <laughs> relieving stress doesn't have to be a time-consuming, wallet-flattening trip to a day spa. Researchers have studied a myriad of ways to counteract the release of stress hormones, and most of them can be done from the comfort of your home. In a country where over 70% of adults report frequently feeling stressed, there are many who can benefit from these simple stress-reducing activities. And finally, talk it out. Sometimes stress builds mountains out of molehills. It can be especially difficult to de-stress when the brain's overwhelmed. Try talking it out with a loved one. Or here's a funny thing. Talk to yourself in the mirror. And if that doesn't make you laugh, get naked and jump up and down. <laughs> now you'll, go, you'll have a real good conversation. Getting the negative thoughts out in the open can help the brain appropriately process them. Sometimes we get all these thoughts caught in our brain and we can't even speak and we can't even get them out. When we hear ourselves say them and speak them, we go, no, that's not quite it. And it allows you to help clear and clean some of it out. You're not having any trouble letting those thoughts out right now. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> They're just flowing. <laughs> and do not be afraid to seek professional help. If chronic stress is interfering with everyday functions, it's important to speak with a doctor about these issues. A doctor may be able to recommend supplements, prescribe medication, or recommend a therapist to assist with stress management. Strategies may include talk therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, what we call CBT. These can also help your brain uncover the connections between your thoughts, your emotions, and your behaviors. And we talked about some of this in previous episodes, but CBD can provide you with mental tools to manage the types of worry and anxiety that screw up your immune system and increase your disease risk. I do this with Dr. Farney all the time. <laughs> oh, so if that isn't enough seriousness, I'm going to turn over to Dr. Kyson for his discussion on diabetes, Dr. K. All righty. Well, today's been interesting, <laughs> to say the least. To say the least. Oh, yeah. Jumping up and down from a mirror probably definitely uh, 
Release some stress. I don't want to hear any more comments about licking your scratch anymore. <laughs> now, yeah. So uh, let's talk about diabetes. So also uh, blood sugar dysregulation, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome X, or diabetes mellitus type 2. So although we've talked about cardiovascular disease, cancer, we've talked about lungs and kidneys, all these are affected by the blood. And one of the underlying causes of all of these is diabetes or some other sugar dysregulation in the body. Now, understand sugar is kind of like gasoline. If you're inflamed, the more sugar you have going, the more inflammation you get, which can lead to changes in muscle tissue in the heart. It can change in smooth muscle. It can change the actual function of cells so they start to create abnormalities to it. It can wear out the kidneys. The acid. So, yeah. Yeah. Acid, acidic. So, yeah, it's very acidic, that. So, uh, I'm going to read. Th this is from the National Institute of Health. It says, it has long been established that stress has a significant impact on metabolic function in the body. Type 2 diabetes may be initiated by psychological and physical stress. The central per peripheral nervous system, or PNS, are both involved in the neuroendocrine framework that underlies the underlying processes. The release of catecholamines and the rise in serum glucocorticoid concentrations caused a physiological and psychological stress enhanced the requirement for insulin, and we see more insulin resistance. Experienced persistent hyperglycemia in people with diabetes may, may be influenced by stress itself. Blood sugar levels may rise due to hormones being released in response to stress, although this adaptive significance in a healthy patient is not bad, but in the long run, it can cause insulin resistance, lead to diabetes. Additionally, diabetes can cause abnormalities in the regulation of these stress hormones. So now we get stuck in another vicious cycle. So what does that essentially mean? What are they saying there? So what it's saying is that different kinds of stress can lead to diabetes type 2. Due to the involvement of the neurological hormone pathways, when stress occurs and it's beyond the normal level of response for an extended period of time, the cortisol levels rise, increasing the body's breaking down and producing more sugar for instant energy. Remember, this is fight or flight. We need instant energy so we can get out of there. We don't need a, a nice, slow, long burn. I used to talk about burning fats like burning a log. It takes a while to get started, but it'll burn all day long. You throw a cup of gasoline on there, woof, we're having a lot of excitement for a few minutes, then it's over. Mm -hmm. But with this high blood sugar level, it's like somebody's continually pouring gasoline on the fire and it's considering having these explosive um, episodes. With this increase in blood sugar, known as hyperglycemia, the body has to absorb it into the tissues to remove it from the <laughs> blood supply because it's very acidic. And to get the tissues, it needs the insulin to go knock on the door. The cells and tissues says, hey, I got sugar for you. Open the door, let some in, which is fine. That works on a normal level until you start to have too much of this glucose or blood sugar building up the tissues and cells, and they stop answering the door when insulin comes knocking. So you release more insulin. So now you have two or three people knocking on the door. And so they come answer it. Okay, we'll let more sugar in. Until you get to the point where it's full up because you're not burning it off fast enough, even though it's producing it for a stress response for fight or flight, but you're not fleeing and you're not fighting. And so it's getting full. And so what happens is the insulin is no longer getting the body to open up and accept blood sugar and so it continues to rise and now we're getting to more issue and then we get to a problem where the insulin not only is not having an effect but you stop producing as well as you need to so 
Part of this is, is trying to figure out how to get these blood sugar levels that are very inflammatory. Again, like I said, act like gasoline and get it out of the cardiovascular system as well as increasing tissue changes leading to the types of cancer, which is like more gasoline being put on it. So if you have cancer, we want to reduce the stress. We want to reduce inflammation in the body, which is all going to exasperate the situation. Mm -hmm. And so getting into a very alkaline diet, removing the sugar as much as you can, is going to be a big part of healing from that. So, again, if you've ever seen anybody burned by fire, you've seen the scar tissue on the arms. I had a gentleman that was a patient of mine at one point when he was younger, a tracker had flipped over, and his entire back was nothing but this mangled scar tissue from when it caught on fire and he was trapped mm-hmm. underneath it. And if you think about what scar tissue looks like from a fire, and you think about that's what it's doing inside of your blood vessels, mm-hmm. and no wonder we're getting la- uh, a loss of elasticity, and no wonder we're seeing so many other issues here. So... Um, again, the, the higher your blood sugar is, the higher you're, you're closer to death. You have a higher morbidity. And now you know why they say stress kills. Mm-hmm. I would add it's slow and insidious and is incorporated right. into all aspects of our lives from how we think to what we eat, to what we feel, to what we do. So our next episode, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about different ways of dealing with stress at home. We talked about a few things today. We're going to expand on those things to a lot more depth and kind of give you a, a better way to approach some of these things at home. And then if you need help, Thank you for listening to the Docera Digest podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all the episodes and show notes over at doceralifecenter.com. While you're on the website, also be sure to check out the blog where you'll find videos and articles to help you proactively rebalance your health.